We're going to focus our attention this afternoon on Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the first Lord's Day dealing with our thankfulness. And in connection with that, I'd like to read with you from God's Holy Word, uh, first from Luke 17, the verses 7 to 19, and then from 1 Peter 2, the verses 9 to 17. Luke 17, we begin at verse 9. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. We turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Start at verse 9. Peter is addressing the exiles in the dispersion, many of whom were struggling because of their faith. He comforts them with these words, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, But now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme 
or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Thus far, reading from God's word. From the Heidelberg Catechism, let's read together Lord's Day 32. Find that on page 548 of your book of praise. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does God owe you? And what do you owe God? The answer we give to this question reveals much about our relationship with the Lord. Some people go through life with the attitude that God owes them, they feel they're entitled to His blessings. They figure that since they're Christians who walk in God's ways, the Lord should show them some goodness in their lives. People might not come right out and say that, but we're inclined to think it. We see this come out especially when bad things happen in our lives. We know that God is almighty, that nothing happens outside of his control. And so we can get frustrated, upset, and angry when God brings hardships and struggles into our lives, when we were serving Him faithfully. Other people have an attitude of gratitude. They understand that the Lord does not owe them anything, that even the smallest blessings in life are a gift from His grace. They recognize that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Because they recognize God as the source of all blessings, they're eager to show forth their thankfulness to Him. In word and deed, they devote their lives to offering thankful praise to God. 
Which of these categories do you fall into, beloved? Do you think either consciously or subconsciously that God owes you? That you're entitled to his grace and blessings? If you honestly examine yourself, do you easily grumble or complain about the circumstances of your life? Do you find times that you're upset or frustrated with God? Or are you the type of person who recognizes that God owes you nothing and that you owe Him everything? Is your life characterized by thankful prayer with an attitude of contentment at the blessings God gives? This afternoon we begin to deal with the third part of the catechism. We have considered how great our sins and misery are and how we are to be delivered from all our sins and misery. Now we deal with how we are to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Lord's Day 32 focuses our attention on how we are to express our thankfulness to God for His grace in Christ by doing good works. It teaches us that our whole life is to be a thank offering to God, a sacrifice of praise to His glory. I preach you the Word of God under the following theme. We owe God an attitude of gratitude for His grace in Jesus Christ. We are to live thankful lives to the glory of God and for the benefit of our neighbor. In our reading from Luke 17, the Lord Jesus teaches us about how it is not God who owes us anything, but we who owe God thanks and praise. Christ does that in verses 7 to 10 by telling his disciples a parable. It's about the relationship between a servant and his master. It appears that this master is a man of modest means. Only one servant is mentioned in this parable. He worked in the fields, but he was also responsible for cooking his master's dinner. Perhaps the master was a man who rented land, and the servant was the one who helped him to crop it and to care for his sheep. In the Middle East, there was a well-defined relationship between masters and servants. The master was the servant's lord or boss. Servants were expected to be obedient, loyal, and hardworking. Yet the flip side was that many servants were respected and valued by their masters. Many servants found their meaning, worth, and security in serving their master well. Jesus' followers understood these things. They were intimately aware of the dynamics of a master-servant relationship. Jesus tells a parable about a servant who has worked for his master in the field during the day. He asks, would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? The way Jesus asks the question in Greek makes it clear he expects a negative answer. No Middle Eastern audience could imagine any servant expecting special honors after fulfilling his duties in the field. 
They would have thought it hilarious for Jesus to suggest that a master would cook and serve dinner for his servant. No one would treat his servant in that way. Perhaps we find it somewhat hard to relate to this example. We live in a technological age with a 40-hour work week, with time and a half for overtime. We might think that after a long, hard day in the field, the servant has earned the right to a little appreciation, some comforts and a few rewards. It might be helpful to use a modern-day example to get the point across. Imagine you go out for dinner in a classy restaurant. You've sat down at table, and the waitress comes out. She sits down at table with you and says, I've been working hard all day, and I'm a terrific waitress, and I think that I should now be able to sit down for dinner with you. How about you take our orders, get our drinks, bring food when it's ready. I'm really looking forward to having some shrimp cocktail with a teriyaki chicken dinner and a stiff drink. What do you think would happen if a waitress tried that? Obviously, such behavior would be completely outrageous. Someone who tried that would, be quick, would quickly get fired from her job. You don't go to a restaurant to serve dinner to a waitress. It's her job to serve you dinner. An example like this helps to get across the parable Jesus was teaching. In his day, to suggest a master prepare and serve dinner to his servant was as ludicrous as you going to a restaurant and serving a waitress dinner. The situation Jesus described would have been unthinkable in, ancient, in the ancient world. People knew their place in life. The master is the master. He is not the equal of his servant. Masters did not eat with servants. An invitation to sit at table with someone was a high social privilege. To recline at table was to be considered a member of the family. Masters were not there to serve their servants, but the other way around. It was not the master's responsibility to make life easy for his servant, but the servant's responsibility to work hard for his master. Having laid the groundwork, Jesus gets to the point of the parable. In verse 9, he asks, Would he, the master, thank the servant because he did what he was told? The Greek does not use the common word for thank. Luke uses it in verse 16 when he describes the Samaritan leper who came back and threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Our text uses a different word, a word normally translated as grace or favor. Literally, our text reads, does the master have any grace or favor for the servant? What Jesus was asking was, does the servant have any favor in the sight of his master because he did what he was told to do? Is the master indebted to the servant because he's worked in his fields or cared for his sheep and then served him dinner as well? The issue is not whether or not the master expresses thanks for what the servant has done. The master may well express appreciation to his servant with a friendly word of thanks, like we might do to a waitress who has served us well. Jesus' point is, 
on account of the work the servant has has done, does the master owe him anything? When Jesus' followers consider the question, they would answer it with a definite no. Servants don't merit anything simply because they did what was expected of them. Masters don't owe their servants grace or favor because they did their job. This leads Jesus to the conclusion of his parable. He said, So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. There's been quite some discussion about how to interpret that word, unworthy. Why does Jesus teach servants who have done their duty to say, we are unworthy servants? We've only done our duty? The point is not that the servant is worthless or useless, as some may suggest. The servant plowed the field. He cared for his master's sheep. He prepared his supper. He was useful. Rather, the point here is, the servant is not worthy of any special merit or reward. Thus, Jesus instructs his disciples to say, we are servants to whom nothing is owing. We have only done our duty. Many people have the opposite approach to God. They think that all the things we do to God, that we do for God, amount to something. That by doing good works, by living faithful lives, by bearing good fruit, we earn God's favor. As Reformed people, we know we cannot earn salvation. But so often we still think that if we're faithful, God should bless us. We equate blessing with material prosperity, with good health with a happy marriage, etc. Subconsciously we think God owes us because we've been good. That can be especially evident in how we react to struggles and to hardships God brings into our lives. It's easy to get frustrated, upset, even angry with God, to blame Him because we know our lives are in His hands. Because we feel like he's not blessing us. Yet, beloved, the truth is that God does not owe us anything. Our pride may make that hard to accept. But it's the honest truth. Even if we did everything God wanted us to do, even then, we've only done our duty. We should not think we can merit God's favor or blessings. That because we do things that please God, he's obligated to reward us with things that make us happy. Not even our best works give us a right to a relationship with God. We don't in any way deserve to come and sit at table with him in the kingdom of heaven. Lord's Day 32 asks us about why we must do good works. Note that word, must. We are under obligation to God. 
even though he doesn't owe us anything, we owe him everything. Our catechism explains why this is so. Question 86 points to the fact that we have been delivered from our, from our misery by grace alone, without any merit of our own. The answer speaks of how Christ has redeemed us by his blood and renewed us by his spirit to be his image. Christ has provided such a wondrous redemption for us. That's why we must do good works. I'd like you to consider for a moment how Christ secured our redemption, how he paid the price for our sins. Although Christ was Lord and King, he humbled himself, taking on our flesh and blood. He came into this world as a man because God's justice required that a man pay for man's sins. What is especially striking is that our Lord and Master became a servant for us. Think about what we've just considered about master-servant relationships. Masters didn't serve their servants any more than you or I would serve dinner to a waitress in a restaurant. Jesus Christ has become a servant for us. Jesus signified this already during his earthly ministry. Although they didn't deserve it in any way, Jesus sat at table with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus especially showed his willingness to serve when he celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. Although he was their master, he went around the room washing his disciples' feet. He took on the role of a servant as an example to his disciples. Paul writes in Philippians 2 about the attitude that Christ took on. Although he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Christ humbled himself, He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Consider that, beloved. Christ, our Lord and Master, didn't just cook a meal and serve us dinner. He humbled himself to the deepest shame and anguish of hell by offering his life for our sins. There is only one way to respond to that, with thanksgiving. In Philippians 2, Paul makes clear that God has highly exalted Christ for his gracious work of redemption. He has given him the name which is above every name. Why? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Bowing the knee is a sign of reverence. It's a sign of submission. Confessing Christ as Lord means we recognize him as our master, whom we owe everything. We owe God an attitude of gratitude 
for his grace in Christ. Luke makes this clear in his account of what happened after Jesus told the parable about master-servant relations. We read in Luke 17, the verses 11 to 17, the story of Jesus' encounter with ten men who had leprosy. They obviously recognized who Jesus was. They knew of how he had healed many in the land. So they pleaded with him, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. These men had a terrible illness. Leprosy is a bacterial infection that affects the skin and the nerves, often resulting in loss of feeling and of muscle control. The loss of feeling often results in unintentional injuries. Lepers would often develop open sores. and In the advanced stage of this illness, a person's flesh would rot away. In Israel, lepers were considered unclean. They were banished from the community. They were not allowed to come into the presence of God at his temple. Thus, you not only suffer from a terrible illness, you're also cut off from family life and from the ability to worship God. It's no wonder that these men cry for Jesus to have pity on them. Jesus did. He came to show God's favor to men to save us from our distress. Jesus did not heal these men on the spot. He told them, go show yourselves to the priests. According to the law of God, lepers were unclean. If they thought they were healed, they had to show themselves to the priest. It's only when these men obeyed that they were healed. Luke 17 verse 14 says, As they went, they were cleansed. Jesus answered the lepers' cry for help. He made them whole again. He rescued their lives. They'd be able to return to their families. They'd be able to live as regular members of the community again. So what did these men do? Nine of them continued on their way to go and see the priest. Only one turned back when he saw he was healed. He came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Then comes the kicker to the whole story. The man who came back was a Samaritan, a heathen. He came back to thank and praise God, while the others, presumably Jews, did not. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? What Jesus makes clear is that not only does God not owe us anything, but we owe him everything. God has not just healed us from some illness, terrible as leprosy was. Through Christ, he has saved us from death. He has delivered us from hell. Although we deserve to come under everlasting punishment of body and soul, God has granted us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. What's your response to that, beloved? 
to live a self-centered life focused on you, to do what you want because somehow you feel like you deserve to have fun. Our catechism teaches us that the proper response to God's undeserved mercy is that with our whole life we show ourselves thankful to God for His benefits that He may be praised by us. We don't just owe God an attitude of gratitude. We're called to live our whole life in obedience to Him. We must do good works. That's how we demonstrate our thankfulness to the Lord. In our first point, we considered how we are to live thankful lives to the glory of God. In our second point, we'll see how we are to live thankful lives for the benefit of our neighbor. Through the redeeming work of Christ and the renewing work of the Spirit, God recreates us in His image. Peter speaks about this in 1 Peter 2. Consider how he describes those who have come to faith in Christ. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. These were titles given to God's covenant people in the Old Testament. But now they're applied to the New Testament church. This has consequences. We are a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. We have a calling to share our blessings with those around us, with unbelievers living in darkness. God has delivered us from darkness by granting His grace in Jesus Christ. We need to praise Him for this. Not just in our worship at church or in our devotions around the dinner table, but by speaking, by sharing our joy in Christ with all those around us, praising God that those around us may also come to know His grace in Christ. Our testimony to the world involves glorifying God in word Indeed, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's by doing good works, by living wholesome lives, that we can serve as instruments in the Lord's hands. How? God uses our conduct among unbelieving neighbors to draw others to Him. You see, beloved, we have something that the world around us hungers for. Many around us live in darkness. They don't really have any deep meaning or purpose for their lives. They might strive to make a lot of money, to live a comfortable life. But even if they achieve that, so what? God has put eternity into man's heart. 
People are always searching to figure out what life is all about. They cannot find what they're looking for apart from God. Besides this, many in this world are ensnared by their sins. They suffer the consequences of them. Life for many around us is not really all that good. It cannot be if you do not live according to the Lord's commands. For you reap the consequences of your actions. We see this happening in so many families in our society around us. Where parents divorce. Where kids get shuffled back and forth between two different homes. So many people who live simply for themselves. But the consequence is, our society is filled with many lonely hearts. We make a profound statement to those around us by living together in love and unity as husband and wife. Society doesn't understand that we see children as a blessing from God. People are puzzled to see how we manage to raise more than two or three kids. People take note when we put in a good effort at work, when we're honest in our dealings with others. They observe when we show compassion to those in need, when we deal kindly and gently with our neighbor. They're surprised when we submit ourselves to the governing authorities, when we honor them because God has put them in charge of us. What really makes a statement to those living in darkness is seeing how we deal with the struggles and the adversity of life. That we can continue to have joy in the Lord, even when we face serious illness. That we're able to forgive those who have sinned against us, just as God in Christ first forgave us. That we have an inner peace that comes from being in a relationship with God. That even in life's darkest hours, we have a living hope in our Savior Jesus Christ. That we know that He will make all things right. If not in this life, then in the life to come. God often uses our Christian conduct to draw unbelievers to Him. For if we're living thankful lives before God, our lives will testify of His grace to others. If you're able to live a joyful, contented life, that'll draw others to you like bees are drawn to something sweet. You know why that is? Because if your life sucks, if you're lonely and unhappy, and you see someone living joyfully, you want what that person has. It's by our godly walk of life that we may win our neighbor for Christ. The testimony of the Christian church has often been a strong witness to the world around us. Throughout the centuries, the church has sent out missionaries to proclaim the gospel to those living in darkness. At the same time, when faced with poverty, disease, illiteracy, joblessness, and the like, the church has often provided support. Church's outreach has most often included both word and deed. 
In Canada, most of our schools, universities, and hospitals were established by Christians. When you stand next to people, when you support and help them, they want to know why you're doing that. When they discover it's because of God's grace in Christ, they're drawn to the gospel. Throughout history, the church has often come under persecution. Many of God's people were willing to suffer reviling, to even die with the name of Jesus on their lips. This has often led others to seek out the truth of the gospel, trying to discern why someone would be willing to die for their faith. God has used the blood of the martyrs as the seed of the church. Often it's especially through times of persecution that the church has flourished. God turning what was meant for our detriment to our good. We, beloved, have been granted a wondrous salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Though he was Lord and King in heaven above, he humbled himself. He became a servant for us. Jesus offered up his life as the only atoning sacrifice for our sins. How are we to respond to that? With an attitude of gratitude to God. Not thinking that God owes us anything, but offering our lives as a sacrifice of thankfulness to him. Live holy lives to God's glory and for your neighbor's benefit. Amen.